We come now to our introduction to systematic theology. And we are beginning a new section today. And I want to give just a review of where we're at on the timeline. This is going to be a little bit uh, repetitive from what we've heard in the past, but I think it's important. Recall that before we started this whole series, before we started talking about God or his decree or anything else related to him, we first had to explore the question of whether or not we could know anything about God and how and where do we attain that knowledge from. Thus, our first lesson was on the doctrine of Scripture. And we moved on from that to the first major doctrine and looked at the nature and character of our God. And then after that, we considered the mind of this God and looked at the eternal decree of God and its characteristics. And we saw that the eternal decree is eternal and changeable and all comprehensive. Then we asked the question, well, how is this eternal decree of God executed? And the answer is that it's executed by God's works of creation and providence. And so we spent six weeks on creation. And recall that a big focus of that section was determining what is the primary governing principle behind God's eternal plan which in turn helps us understand what is the primary governing principle in God's act of creating. And that governing principle is, broadly speaking, the glorification of God. You recall we said more specifically, it is God's desire to be glorified in His holiness, His power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, and grace. And he does this through a work or economy of salvation that he's established among the members of the Trinity by an eternal covenant in which the Father chooses to save some and not save others. And so in this, the Lord Jesus Christ becomes preeminent. Recall what we read in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then finally, Pastor J.P. dealt with the other work whereby his eternal decree is executed, that being the work of providence. So God has created all things, and now he is governing, preserving, and ordering all these things, all these creatures and all their actions. Why is he doing this? In the words of the larger catechism, to his glory. That is, he preserves, he governs, he orders all creatures and all their actions so that the person and work of Jesus Christ is made preeminent in order that God be glorified in all of his uh, perfections. Beloved, I hope you never lose sight of that big picture. Take everything that you've been learning and bring it with you as we go into this new section. I can't emphasize this enough. So much of theology today, we were just talking about in Roe and JP and I, fellowship meal. 
So much of theology today is just a disjointed mess. People just want to hone in on one area of thought without looking at the other areas. And they're trying to figure out how this works, but they can't figure it out because they've lost sight of the big picture. That's how you get stuff like dispensationalism, hyperpreterism. That's how you get things like critical race theory infiltrating the church. Oh, but we recognize we're wrong here. We just want to talk about it. Yeah, but you have no structure. You have no system. You have no boundaries. You've lost sight of the big picture. Or perhaps you never saw the big picture to begin with. So now skin color becomes preeminent in your life. Not Jesus Christ. You know, I don't mean to get a little sidetracked here, but, you know, last night we had our annual uh, Enro Andre smoke out, trademark pending. <laughs> and prior to getting together with the guys, I found out that some guy on the internet took a very cheap shot of our pastor in our church, our seminary. I'm not going to mention his name. But he did this to get those race-obsessed people that follow him worked up thinking that we're some racist Old South operation down here. So I had that on my mind last night as I'm hanging out with the guys. As I'm sitting back at the fire pit, I'm just observing. I noticed two things. One, for about a stretch there, there were really two guys that were doing most of the talking. And there were the two guys, because of their skin color, you wouldn't think would have been there to start with. <laughs> Especially in Rome. And, but this, the second thing I noticed is no matter what we talked about, and I mean, we hit on all kinds of stuff last night. It was like uh, racism, politics, military, the stock market, demon possession, whip, witchcraft. No matter what we talk about, what you saw for the most part is that we were all pretty much on the same page with everything. All of these various areas of life being looked at through the lens of the biblical world life in view. And we're all speaking with one mind. Why is that? And it matter the age of the person, their background, their life, their skin color. One mind. Why? Because we have a group here that sees the big picture. No matter what we talk about, we see how it all fits together in the grand scheme. And so when you get some guy, I'm trying to be nice here, taking these pot shots at us and trying to cause division, didn't phase anybody in the slightest. Didn't matter. We brought it up, we laughed about it, and that was it. It was over. There's a guy who's lost sight of the big picture. But what we have is that singleness of mind, that shared vision, because no matter the topic, no matter the doctrine, no matter the issue, we never lose sight of that bigger picture. I'm reminded of something Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and the cra by craftiness and deceitful, deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, into Christ. 
Notice the focus here. What is central in Paul's thinking? He says it in verse 13, to we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. It's Christ who is central to this plan. It is him and to him alone that we are to look. Calvin writes, let us remember that true faith confines its view so entirely to Christ that it neither knows nor desires to know anything else. And he goes on, it ought to be held as a fixed principle among us that all that is out of Christ is hurtful and destructive. And what comes about as a result of leaving that principle Verse 14, people are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So think about the result of losing sight of Christ and that big picture is that men and women are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine that is invented by man, including critical race theory. But what's the flip side to that? Unity of the faith, unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, speaking the truth in love, verse 13, not being darkened in our understanding, verse 18, not being ignorant, verse 18 also, and putting away falsehood, verse 25. Beloved, there is a body of doctrine here that God has revealed to us so as to keep us on course, and not lose sight of the big picture and the prize that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head, verse 15. Again, reminiscent of what Paul said in Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be made preeminent. That's our vision. That's our purpose. And losing sight of that vision will have you all over the place in some disjointed, incoherent, mumbled mess. Well, you might be thinking, I'm halfway done, and you're thinking, well, okay, well, we got the whole unity thing down, we got the whole systematic theology thing down, but what doctrine are we supposed to be looking at now? Well, we're now moving into the doctrine of sin and of the fall of man. We're going to consider the nature of sin, its effects, how it came into the world, and so on. But don't think of my initial comments here as just some random thought that I just threw in just to fill up some time. Because as we move into this doctrine, we have to do so bringing everything that we've looked at forward with us. Because if you don't, if you try to isolate the issue of sin and the fall from the bigger picture, you're going to end up in those errant views that our pastor spoke to us last Lord's Day. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, and all the rest. Disjointed, incoherent messes that can't make sense of the big picture. So how are we to view sin and the fall of man? What is our standard? Is it our feelings? Is it our emotions? Our opinions? Or is it scripture? Section 1. We talked about it. And what of God and his eternal decrees and its relation to sin? Did God not know what was going to happen? Did it surprise him? Did God change his mind or change his plan? When God created the world, he did not know what Adam and Eve were going to do? Does God's preserving and governing and ordering not also include their actions of sin and the fall of man? 
Well, if you've been paying attention, you already know the answers to these questions. So do you see how your understanding can come out radically different if you ignored everything that we've been talking about and try to address the issue of sin apart from the bigger picture? You go off into all sorts of speculation and nonsense and ultimately lose sight of Christ. And so this isn't just a random thought just to fill up time. It's a very important point, especially as we move into this study of sin. Because it's with this doctrine in the fall of man, we're now moving into an area which on the surface would seem to create some massive, irreconcilable problems for our faith. I mean, it's one thing to talk about God and his attributes and his plan sort of in the abstract, so to speak. But it's a lot different when that plan now is set in motion and we experience it. The temptation there is to observe our experience of ourselves and others and to start doubting and start waffling on the quote-unquote abstract. And so, no, this is no random reminder, but a very important point in light of the difficult topic of sin and how it affects all of us in horrible ways. Do not lose sight of the bigger picture, beloved. And I believe our forefathers in the faith would say the same to us today. Isn't it interesting what we find in our confession in chapter 6 when we get to uh, the chapter on the fall? They open it up by saying, Our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. Now let's stop there. Now hear that, what I just said, and then try to divorce everything that we've said in this series thus, thus far. Do that, and a ton of questions will start coming up in your mind. Well, who's this Satan character? Where'd he come from? Who made him? And why was there forbidden fruit? Who, who, who set up that whole scenario to start with? And where was God while all this was going on? Well, why didn't he stop Satan? On and on it can go. But the divines don't leave it there. They go on, our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan's sin and eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased. Let me just stop there. Pleased? What do you mean God was pleased? He was pleased with their sin? I thought God was holy. Well, let's keep read, reading. I stopped there for effect, by the way. The divines didn't stop there. Let's keep reading. Our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan's sin and eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel. Ah. It's wise and holy counsel. Where we've heard that before. Section three on the eternal decree of God. Love it, you see it? Bring it all forward. Don't leave it behind. This their sin God was pleased, wrote the divines according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it. There you see purpose. God is ordering it. He's ordering the creatures and their actions. Pastor J.P. spoke to us on that. Section 5, Doctrine of Providence. And why is he, what is he purposing or ordering it to? Having purpose to order it to his own glory. There's those words again, to his own glory. There you have it. That's the big picture. The divines never lost sight of it, and neither should we. That's the first thing they tell us out the gate on the doctrine of sin. Do not forget 
the bigger picture. Quick note on that word permit. If you look at the notes in the confession, they reference the previous chapter, paragraph four, where the issue of permission was mentioned there. But notice what it says there. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in this providence that it extended itself even to the first fall, that's where we're at, and all other sins of angels and men, and that, and that not by a bare permission, but such have, have joined it with a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceeded only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So there you have the context. God is not pleased with the sin itself. God was not its author nor its approver. Yet he permitted it, quote unquote, to happen. And this permission was no bare permission. Now, what does that mean? What's the difference between permission versus bare permission? Well, the context tells us. Notice the contrast, and not by a bare permission, but, here's the contrast, such hath, as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to its own holy ends. In other words, it wasn't as if God looked into the future and saw that Adam and Eve were going to rebel and there wasn't really anything he could do about it. And then he's got to sit and decide, well, can I somehow turn this around for some good purpose? And if I can, well, I'll permit it to happen. No, it was an active permission by the hand of God. He actively and intentionally permitted it, being joined with a most wise and powerful bounding in order to bring about his holy purpose. And what is that purpose? Generally speaking, the glory of God. Specifically, that God be glorified in his holiness, power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, and grace. Via a work of salvation established by the eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Wherein the Father chooses to save some and not save others. The Son will take on our reasonable soul and body so that the man, Christ Jesus, who is united to the God, subjects himself to the law, perfects obedience, subjects himself to the wrath of God, dies as a substitutionary atonement for the elect, then rises from the dead to ascend into heaven and sit at the Father's right hand to exercise all authority over heaven and earth as prophet, priest, and king. And then the Spirit applies the benefits of that salvation to the elect at their appointed time. That was the plan. It was the plan before Adam rebelled. It was in the plan in the midst of Adam's rebellion. And it was the plan after he fell. There is no other plan. And it's still the plan. Paul says in Romans 11, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. He's talking to the Gentiles and the Jews. So they too, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience. There's his purpose, that he may have mercy on all. And what does this drive Paul to? 
thinking about God's eternal plan. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Beloved, in closing, if God had not permitted sin, we would never know the beauty of free grace and pardoning grace. If God had not permitted sin, there would be no need for an incarnate son and the mercy of a soul-redeeming Messiah. If God had not permitted sin, human self-dependence would be exalted rather than dependence upon God. If God had not permitted sin, God's attributes would not be exalted because we wouldn't know anything about his justice in punishing sin, nor of his mercy and grace in forgiving sin and his wisdom in overruling it. We would, in short, as Pastor Talbot, I've heard him say numerous times, be singing the praises of Adam, a man, and not be singing the praises of the glorious King, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, that was the purpose to begin with. We should never lose sight of that. Once you understand that the preeminence of Christ and the glory of God and all his perfections is that bigger picture, you will then begin to understand the role that sin has in that scheme. And it's very important we keep that in mind. Well, I am out of time. Again, I know that was, uh, I've harked on this before, but <laughs> with my experience, Having abused this thing and not understanding, it's so important that we never lose sight of the big picture.